We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. Our speaker today is the senior pastor, Tom Nelson. I'd like you to look at Mark in chapter 6 and verse 14 and following. I didn't have Drew read this simply out of time because it's a kind of a lengthy text. But what this text is about, it's, it's a trivia question. And the question is, uh, what is the only text in the New Testament, or in the Gospels, where Jesus is not mentioned. It's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. What's the only text that he is not mentioned? Well, it's this text. He inspires the text, Jesus does, but he's not mentioned in it. Because it's the text about a politician. And often God is not mentioned when you mention politicians. He is a politician who represents Rome. Uh, He is a politician that is not a king. He's a tetrarch, one of four, but he wants to be a king. His name is Herod Antipas. His father, Herod the Great, was a king. And he would like to be like his father, but he wasn't. Uh, And he is a king that executes the last Old Testament prophet, John the Baptist. He is a king that mocks and makes fun of the Son of God. He is a king. He's an Edomite. Do you all know that? The Herodians were not Jews. They were Idumeans. They're descendants of Esau. The Bible says Esau hated Jacob. The author of Hebrews simply said, let there be no immoral or impure person in your midst like Esau, who despised his birthright for a single meal. God meant nothing to him. Happy meal meant everything. That was Esau. And the question is, why is this story here about the martyrdom of John the Baptist, the beheading of John the Baptist? Well, there is a reason. Immediately preceding this story in all three Gospels, there is the renunciation of Jesus by Israel. In other words, religion collapsed. They said he does his miracles by the power of of the devil, and the offer of the kingdom was withdrawn and gone to the Gentiles. And so right preceding this text three times is the fall of religion. And then you see the fall of politics. What are the two arms of, uh, of structure that guard society? Religion and the state. Politics given by God that is meant to rule in the stead of God, and then religion that presents the coming of the substitution of the Messiah. Both of them have collapsed simultaneously, almost. They're both gone. And after it is over, it says in verse 30 of chapter 6, the apostles gathered together. How many times have you ever heard me say in our present day, everybody circle up? Jesus says, circle up. They gathered together with Jesus and reported to him all that they had done. And he said, come away by yourselves to a secluded place because the world is passing away. And so all of you boys circle up. If you would like to name this text Band of Brothers, feel free. It is the Band of Brothers. Have y'all ever looked up in our world and thought the same thing? that religion 
has renounced the person of Christ and the God of the Bible. And in politics, is there a little problem in our world with politics? Yeah. That they're both gone. They've disappeared. And we have to circle up in a secluded place because we are about to become the band of brothers. And so that is why this text is here. You know, whenever the Roman Empire was literally, uh, Rome was being taken by the tribes and it was falling. And the Bishop of Hippo in North Africa was named Augustine. And he wrote a book called The, the City of God. And basically what he said was, the city of man that is run by self-love and lust, it will collapse as it always does. Rome was falling as he wrote it. And he said, this is what governments do without God. They collapse. He said, we will remain because we are not the city of man. We are the city of God. And we have a priest and we have a king. Amen. And he makes no mistakes. And so when everything else is gone, we will remain. Uh, today, Rome is an archaeological dig. Uh, you can still read about Jesus, however, in his church. We still stand. And so this text is Band of Brothers. This is you. This is you. Uh, what has happened? Let me catch you up. The doors of the synagogue in chapter 2 through 6 have shut. In Mark chapter 1, there is the offer of the kingdom. Mark 2 through 6 is the rejection of the kingdom. And he turns now in the parable, the mystery to the Gentiles, the anticipation of the coming church. And now in chapter 6, after the religious authority has collapsed, now the political authority is beginning to collapse. Uh, Rome is alarmed. You see it in verse 1. King Herod heard, meaning of verse 12 and 13, of the activity of the twelve out preaching. He heard of it because Jesus' name had become well known. And people were saying, John the Baptist has risen from the dead, and that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Verse 16, Herod heard of it. He kept saying, John, whom I beheaded, has risen. Uh, he is alarmed. Whenever you see through history the gospel sprouting and going up, you will always see that there's two things that raise up against it. Always. One is religion and one is politics. Religion doesn't like the Lamb of God. Politics doesn't like the Lion of Judah. Religion that is always working to earn eternal life. You with me? That's religion. First you have performance, then you have verdict. Christianity, you have a verdict, then you have performance. And so religion that is always, I don't care whether it's Islam, Hinduism, liberal Christianity, classic Roman Catholicism, uh, whatever the ism, it's always performance equals you earn a verdict. And here comes grace. And so religion will always oppose Christ. And then right after that, you will have government. Government 
that has abandoned God, whenever uh, there is no absolute to govern society, society becomes absolute. Where you don't have God, man makes himself one. See also history. And here you have a people with a Bible in their hand saying, thus saith the Lord. The word has become flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. Thus saith the Lord. And so you see in religion, man is called accountable to the holiness of God. And in government, man is called accountable uh, to the righteousness of God. The lion and the lamb, man can't take him and we'll get rid of him. And that's what's happening here. When you look at this text about Herod, he's going to look very familiar. Uh, don't insert any names right there, please. Okay. Herod is typical. He is typical of what is going on with Rome, and he is typical of what is going on in all government, and it all falls. One thing about society is that government always goes down. When there is no absolute to govern society, society becomes absolute, and then it becomes murderous, it becomes violent, and then it becomes insane in times. And God puts it down like a mad dog. And so, with that bit of encouragement, I hate list. I'm going to give you 10 things. 10 lessons about government right here. The first is in verse 14. Uh, John the Baptist has risen from the dead. That is why the miraculous powers are at work in him. Herod heard of it, verse 16, and said, Oh my golly, he's back to get me. Number one is that a threat is always sensed by government. I want to read you something. This is from one of my professors at seminary that wrote the commentary on uh, Mark for the uh, Moody Gospel commentary. His name was Lou Barbieri. And he wrote about this text. He said, news of the expanding ministry of the 12 throughout Galilee was expanding, as well as that of Jesus Christ. It eventually found its way into the palace of the ruler. The king's court, even if located at Tiberias, which it was there on the Sea of Galilee, could regard with indifference the preaching of a local prophet so long as it was limited to the Jewish lakeside towns. But when it was systematically carried into every part of the country, which is chapter 6, 1 through 7, suspicion was aroused. Meaning it's okay for Jesus to be bantered about here by the Sea of Galilee. But when he goes from one end of this country to the other, saying things that are authoritative, healing, to give credence to these words, now Caesar is being challenged. Somebody has to go. And so government will always be threatened by Jesus. Always. Whether it is in Nebuchadnezzar's day, they've got all these countries they've conquered, they're all in Babylon, lots of religions. Does Nebuchadnezzar let all religions flourish? No. He says, you can have your religion, but I'm going to put up an image of me 
And you've got to bow down to that. In the early church, uh, yeah, the early church, uh, Christianity could coexist with Judaism as long as once a year you would burn a pinch of incense and there you would proclaim, Kuria Caesar, Caesar is Lord. You had to acknowledge that. Uh, in Persia, you could have your religion, but you just couldn't pray to any other God. We will throw you in the fiery furnace, we will throw you in the lion's den, or we will throw you to the lions. And so I will not have any government taking precedence over Caesar. They said of the Apostle Paul at Thessalonica, he is proclaiming there is another king, Jesus. This man can't stand. Uh, there are three reasons you see in verse 14, 15, 16, uh, three answers that were offered about the power of Christ. Number one in verse 14 is superstition. John the Baptist has risen from the dead, and he is animating Jesus and these people. It's interesting their assumption that if a man rises from the dead, then the supernatural is possible, even logical. If a man has conquered death, then this can happen. Uh, the other answer was in verse 15. They said, he is Elijah. Meaning, they take this from Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 that Elijah had to precede the coming of Messiah. Jesus interpreted that as John the Baptist in the spirit and power of Elijah. They took that in a literal sense, that there's going to be a revisitation to planet Earth of the man Elijah. How did Elijah die? He didn't. God caught him into glory. And so they said, this is not superstition, it's supernatural. This man that ascended into heaven, he's come back. And so we've got super, superstition and the supernatural. And now in verse uh, uh, 16, or rather verse 15, you have the superficial. Others were saying he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. No, he is not. This is not superstitious, and this is not the supernatural. He's simply a great man. He's a return to the days of great preaching. How many of y'all grew up in a, method, or in a church that was liberal? And you heard, you know, he's not the son of God, not born of a virgin, didn't rise from the dead. He is simply a great man. Anybody ever hear that? Yes, yeah, the liberal gospel. And this was an anticipation of the liberal gospel. He's simply a good man. Later on in church history, it was called the Ebionite heresy. E-B-I-O-N-I-T-E, the Ebionite, that he's simply a great man. And that's why he became the Messiah, because he was so great. And so they offer up answers for who this man is. None of them are biblical. Does the world still do that? I will give you an answer for Christianity. It is not the biblical answer. I'm going to do a taxidermist model on it, and I'll take out all the guts and the viscera, and I'll give you a hull and a shell and we'll call it Christianity. Well, lesson two is down in verse 16. But when Herod heard it, Herod's going to come up with an answer. 
John, whom I beheaded, has risen. Now, let me give you the second lesson here, right here. The first lesson is, is that government is always intimidated at the knowledge of an infinite personal God by which they are judged. Lesson two is that uh, government and society always has an inadequate answer for Jesus. They will do an exchange of the biblical notion of God becoming one of us, and they will put in a more rationalistic idea. And so government always has an inadequate knowledge of Christ. Is that still true? If you're going to go out and learn about who God is, where do you go? University of Texas, right? Right. They can't beat ACC. Okay. I'm sorry. I just said that. Yeah. You don't go to learn about Christ by going to a military base or to a university or to big business or to Congress. They're not going to teach you that. It's got to go to the church. Uh, it's like our dear president that quoted one of his favorite verses from the book of Palms. <laughs> Did anybody see that? The dear book of Palms. This is an Ivy League grad, the dear book of Palms. Or like Al Gore that quoted his favorite verse from John 16, 3. Yeah. You remember the wise men came to Jerusalem and they said, where is he who was born the king of the Jews? Remember what this Herod's father, Herod the Great said? The what? King of the Jews. I have no idea. Fellas, does anybody know? Yeah, it's going to be in Bethlehem. Really? The heck you say? He had no clue as to who he was. He had not been to Sunday school. Okay. And so in the early church, there were thoughts on who Christ, what Christianity was. Number one, they thought that Christianity was going to be defiant because they had an authority outside of Rome. Thus, they would be defiant of Rome. Number two, they thought it was immoral because we had agapes, love feasts of brothers and sisters. They thought there were orgies of incest. I'm not making this up. They thought that. They also thought because we ate of the flesh and drank of the blood that there was child sacrifice and cannibalism that we did. And so that's the brilliant insight that these Roman philosophers and politicians thought about Christianity. And so in verse 16, Herod now comes up with an answer and his answer is behind door number one. He agrees with verse 14, John whom I beheaded has risen. Why did he think this? Because he was scared. I did him a great wrong. I beheaded him. And he's back to get me. Anybody ever read Edgar Allan Poe's Telltale Heart? Skip, you were sleeping, right? Your English class was taught by an offensive line coach. That's why you didn't read In Telltale Heart, the guy puts this old man to death, buries him under the boards of his house. The cops come looking for him, and he can hear the old man's heart beating louder and louder and louder. He just knows the cops are just making fun of him because they can hear the heartbeat. And he rips off the boards. He says, here he is. Whose heart was he listening to? His own. Yeah. Telltale heart. Well, Herod knows 
He's back to get me. It's been said that conscience makes cowards of us all. And so your lesson three is, even though this king denied God, even though this king persecuted the faith, he could not remove his sense of conscience. He cannot escape what he is, and that is a creature in the image of God. And he has guilt that he cannot remove. You remember whenever the apostle Paul preached when he was in prison to a guy named Felix, the governor, and Felix had taken another man's wife and he had a wife named Drusilla. Yeah, Drusilla. And Paul, talking to him, talked about righteousness, self-control, and hell. And Felix said, go away until I summon for you later. And he never heard from him. He just couldn't stand the light turning on in the midst of his sin. Now, Felix, do you believe anything about monotheism? No, but I can't get away from who I am is man in the image of God. And that is why there is only one ideology and belief system that will satisfy mankind, and that is Christianity. Because it deals with the essence of what a man is, that he exists with infinite dignity apart from all the rest of the creation, with a sense of moral failure, and he is in desperate need of absolution by the mercy of somebody else. He needs a gospel good news from outside of him that a supreme being performs. So nothing will work but Christianity. So without Christ, Herod is just a man looking for Christ. All right. You're either looking for him or you're running from him. And so in verse 17 through 24, are y'all with me so far? I've shown you three things about government. Well, here's a fourth thing. Verse 17 to verse 24 tells us why Herod felt guilty. Is that Herod was, let me list them. He is seen to be a weak, lustful, murderous, proud, wicked man that is manipulated by a wicked, dominating, scheming wife whose name is Herodias that has an immoral daughter Anybody want to guess? What's the name of the daughter? Salome. The Bible never says that. You know that? It's by Josephus and his writings said her name was Salome. And we believe that. And so she had a rotten daughter named Salome. And they were not willing to coexist with this voice of guilt. We've only got two choices. Either we can repent or we can kill this individual. Anybody want to guess which one? gets voted on. John's got to die because I'm not changing. So John will die. And so your lesson number four is that history's leaders are usually shams. They're facades. Behind the scenes, this man can't master his own lust. This can't, man can't master his own household and wife. This man can't control his own daughter. You remember the statue in the book of Daniel about Gentile dominion? It goes from gold, silver, bronze, iron, clay. And that's where we get the notion, feet of clay 
that is applied to a phony. And so this man has feet of clay. One of the great distinctiveness of the Bible, there's a number of things that makes the Bible unique, but one of them is the Bible's view of heroes, its view of leaders. In Greek mythology and Roman mythology, the gods are just amplified men. They're not, they have affairs, they kill people, they're jealous, they're angry, they're divisive, they lie. And whenever you look at the men of history, uh, no offense, but you're going to come up with the Kennedys, okay? With old Joe Kennedy said to his wife, Rosie, we're going to the show, we're going to the party, we may be immigrants, but we're going to rise. And he took all of his kids, and, but he never could deal with the kids' hearts. And so you had adulterers, you had ad infinitum on the Kennedys. And that's kind of the way it is with, uh, with all of history's leaders. What did Patton, MacArthur, Eisenhower, and uh, Roosevelt have in common? They all had affairs. All four of them. And that's not privy knowledge. Everybody knows that. They were men of clay. History simply does the best that it can with what it has. St. Augustine once said, the greatest of saints is a vile thing. Only in one ideology, one politic and one religion, do you see one man who can say, who accuses me of sin? Can you imagine one of our politicians saying that at a briefing? <laughs> All right. Who accuses me of sin? No one could ever say that. It is a constant source of turmoil to me that I am so separated from the one who I regard to be my own life and being, and I know that it is by my own selfishness and my own filthiness and wretchedness. Who said that? Gandhi. And so, no, we can't come up with anybody good. Even Peter denied Christ. Even Paul slew the saints. And so, uh, lesson four, history's leaders are shams. But when you look at the New Testament, you see all the way from Abel to Noah to Abraham, you see virtuous, honest, repentant, sorrowful, confessing men. The standard of, if you took the standard of simply what is required for an elder, a deacon, or a serving woman in 1 Timothy 5, applied it to the ballot, you could have revival in America. If we said, these are the guys that you got to get. Husband and one wife. Oops. Verse 17. Herod himself, here's why he felt guilty. He had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias. The woman kept on harping. I don't like him. He has to make a choice. God or career? Career one. And so he, the, he uh, had him bound in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother, Philip, because he had married her. He had him arrested, chained, and put in prison. Why? Herod uh, had taken his brother's wife. He has a half-brother named Philip. He has a wife named Herodias, who is the granddaughter of Herod's father, Herod the Great. I know it sounds kind of Arkansas-like right here, okay. But don't email me, okay. But this is like an like a uncle and a niece, all right, 
Pat, I find no humor in that. I'm so dumb. And so Philip had married Herod's granddaughter, Herodias. Uh, Herod Antipas, his son, went down to visit his half-brother and this woman, and lo and behold, he liked her. And so he seduced her away from Philip and married her. Uh, and she brings with her her daughter from a previous marriage, Salome. In other words, it is a blatant violation of divine law. Amen? It is a blatant violation. And in verse 18, it brought the condemnation of John the Baptist. John had been saying, that's in the imperfect. He won't relent. And Luke chapter 3 verse 19 says, he rebukes not only the marriage of Herod Antipas, but he rebukes also, quote, the many wicked things which he had done. And so he had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Lesson five, you ready? The people of God do not sit silent at political evil. Was Herod a confessing Jew? No. But he is a ruler over the Jews. And so, Herod, if you can't stand the heat, stay out of the kitchen. Now politics comes under the assignment of God. We've had a load of people left in Bible. Simply over our, uh, we took a stand on politics. To which I said, que sera, sera, arrivederci. Chili con carne. Ciao. Because we're not going to go silent at this. The Bible says about politics, deliver those who are being led away to death. Deliver those being led away to slaughter. Oh, hold them back. If you say, lo, we did not see this. Does not God know who weighs the hearts? When you see evil occurring, you got to speak. You dig? You got to speak. Whenever I'm told this about sodomy, this about infanticide, this about perversion, whenever you start trying to find an answer to the racial problem by communism, then you speak. And that's what this man does. That's why in Israel, you have kings that are from Judah, and then you have priests that are from Levi. In other words, you had a check and a balance these guys don't get to run loose. The Bible says that a king's throne is built upon righteousness and justice. And so the people of God have to speak. We are the conscience of our country. Where are we going to get it? We're not going to get it from Congress. We're going to get it from Antifa. Where are we going to get a voice of conscience? It's going to come from us. And so we got to speak. And so you speak. Lesson number six, you see in verse 19, Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted, and that word wanted is in the imperfect. She wouldn't get off of Herod's ear. I want him dead to put him to death and could not do so. Uh, lesson number six. Government wants the voice of God silenced. I will not coexist with autonomy and uh, 
monotheism. I will not have an infinite personal God speaking and condemning what I do. Henry VIII got rid of his wife to get another Anne Boleyn. Y'all ever seen the movie Man for All Seasons? There was a guy named Thomas More, uh, uh, higher up in the Anglican Church, or I'm sorry, the Roman Catholic Church, and he would not consent to it, and he took off his head. The King of England could not, he put a guy in charge, one of the later kings of uh, the, the Archbishop of Canterbury, a guy named Thomas Becket. You ever heard clothes make the man? All of a sudden, he was not just a drinking partner of the king. All of a sudden, he's an archbishop. And he spoke out against what the king was doing. And the king had him murdered there on the altar of the church. A guy named Hitler had uh, the German confessing Protestant church speak against what he was doing. He made them all sign a declaration that they supported the Fuhrer. They had to. Some of them resisted. You ever heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer? He was one of them. Karl Barth was another one. They did what was called the Barman Declaration. They said no, and we got rid of them. Uh, in communist-controlled countries, Christianity is put down underground and destroyed. We can't have anybody voicing a voice of, of uh, opposition. In America, we simply call it censorship. We'll shut you up. And in time, we'll call it hate speech. And they will take away our being a tax-free organization. They'll find a way to get rid of us. You can't have sin and truth coexist. There's either got to be repentance or there's going to be murder. Somebody's going to change. Blessed art thou, art thou when men say all kind of evil against you falsely on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice and be great. For great is your reward in heaven. For thus they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You stand in a holy lineage. Well, in verse 20, Herod could not do so. Herod was afraid of John. I'm sorry, in verse 19, Herod could not do so because Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he's a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was very confused or perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. Herod knew that killing John was wrong. He knows that. He knew in verse 20 that John was right. He even admired John, but he is afraid to oppose his wife. He is afraid to indulge his wife. He is afraid to point the finger at his wife and say, no, I am a king. I do not put innocent men to death to punish the innocent and absolve the guilty, both of them are an abomination, Proverbs. And so, no, I cannot do this. But the problem is, in verse 20, it says he was very perplexed. The word perplexed is the word spelled A-P-O-R-E-O, aporeo, and it means no way, no way, meaning I'm at an impasse. I've got to choose right or I've got to choose career. Y'all remember a guy down south at this time named Pontius Pilate is going to face the same deal and Christ will die. In him I find no guilt. Said it six times and sent him to his death because career was at stake. 
And so this fellow is on the horns of a dilemma. He is on the fence. Do I go with God or do I go with this woman and my career? Which do I do? He wanted to be king, but he didn't want to live like one. Can that ever happen? Where men get into position of leadership and they simply don't want to follow through on what they have to be. And that brings us to lesson seven. Rulers inevitably will find themselves on the fence. The pressure to between what ought to be and the pressure of what is demanded by circumstance. Should I do what is right or should I do what is expedient to my career? And that's where he finds himself. Uh, There is a king in the New Testament that simply says in the face of death, not my will, but thine be done. That is the ultimate king. If you can find a nail-pierced man who will die for the glory of God and the good of his people, that's the ultimate king. He's so holy, we can't get him on the ballot. But that's the ultimate king. And so lesson seven, kings will inevitably find themselves on the fence between truth and career. Lesson eight, you find in verse 21. And this says that behind leaders are the self-interest of others. Behind leaders are the self-interest of those pulling their strings. They had a term for them back in the early days of America. Whenever the senators and the congressmen would go to vote down in the Capitol lobby, people would grab them and get their ear. And we call them lobbyists. It was pressure. We're going to make contributions. Pressure. We want this done. Uh, Verse 21, a strategic day came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his lords and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. It is a strategic day. Herod needs support. He does a fundraiser. He throws his own birthday party to celebrate him. I like this guy. And he invites politicians, military men, and money men. Is that still done? I'm going to have a fundraiser, and I need to get all of you guys that like me. And it is an all-male event. Herodias has to come in, and Salome has to come in. It's an all-male party. Do I need to go on? Uh, what do you expect at an all-male party? We're going to have some booze. We're going to have some fun. And whenever a bunch of men get together, what's the one thing you need? A stripper. Well, in verse 22, y'all thought I was kidding, but I wasn't. And when the daughter of Herodias herself, what's the next two words? Came in. She's not there. This is put up by Herodias. Here comes her daughter. She came in and danced. Herod has a surprise birthday party for her husband. She's not a stripper. On his birthday, where does she come out of? The cake. You gotta love her, all right? And she pleased Herod and his dinner guest, a bunch of guys. Uh, the wine is flowing and so is his ego and so is his lust 
and there's a bunch of guys pounding on the table, and Herodias has timed it perfectly. And so he says what she expects. Say, baby. That's in the Greek. <laughs> ask, uh, like, ask me for, for whatever you want. I'll I give it to you. All right? That's what he says. And she times it. In verse 24. He says in 23, whatever you ask of me, I'll give it to you up to half my kingdom. Verse 24, the Salom went out to where her mother is and says to her mother, Mama, he said to me, what shall I ask for? And she said, checkmate, I got you because you made it publicly. I'm counting on lust. I'm counting on pride and I'm counting on peer pressure by your constituents and your supporters. I've got you. You made a promise. And so tell him that I want, verse 24, the head of John the Baptist. It worked. I want John dead. Why on a platter, a charger? Because if it's on a platter, it has to be done immediately. If it's on a platter, you can't just rough him up. I want to know he's dead. And you'll notice in verse 25, immediately she came in a hurry and said to the king saying, I want you to give me at once. Now, now, now. She knew that I've got him in the presence of his peers and he does not have the courage to back down. He, my husband doesn't have the stuff to stand up. And so you tell him to do this because I got him. The Hebrew word is wiener. <laughs> I've got him. All right. Incidentally, a little admonition. I'm about out of time, but this is just too good. Whenever you talk a woman out of her first husband, all right, you guys, make a note. Okay. Whenever you talk a woman out of her first husband, if she doesn't have the wherewithal not to abandon her first husband, once she becomes your wife, do you think you're going to get Mother Teresa? Huh? No, you got a problem now is that you succeeded. It's a story I remember hearing it as a young believer that a guy went into an insane asylum. And he heard a guy calling out from his cell whose wife had abandoned him. And he's crying out, Lulu, Lulu. He goes down a couple of cells and here's the guy that got her. And he's going, Lulu, Lulu. I find no humor in that. <laughs> and so, lesson number nine. You ready? Politicians play to the public. This is what a guy named Francis Schaeffer said when he made the film. Anybody remember the film Schaeffer made called How Should We Then Live? If you haven't seen it, go find it. It, it was prophetic. He saw it coming. Made it in the 70s. And the last part of the last film was someday the media will become its own political party. Unquote. That's what he said. And everybody went, really? He said, yeah. He said, 
The media does not give you the message. The media is the message. We would call it today fake news, but they're gonna become another political party. You don't need the media that much with a king because he's gonna do what he wants to do. He's got, quote, the divine right. When you got a guy being elected, he's always mindful of the populace. This is what de Tocqueville said about America. He said, don't get too cocky about democracy because our kings are gonna do what they think is right. Your guys are always gonna be thinking about pleasing the public to get elected and pay their bills. He said, be careful, and he was right. Uh, my son is in the White House. He made a statement to me once about politics. He said, everything is done with the camera in mind. How will it play to the masses? Verse 26, the last principle. The king was very sorry, but because of his oaths, because of his dinner guest, he is unwilling. The king has put himself in a position. I've got to make a call. Do I do what's right? Or do I do what is politically expedient? Is that ever a problem for a, for a politician or a king? Will I do what is career-minded? Or will I do what is right? Will I do the will of God? And generally, career wins. Pilate will wash his hands and say, I have nothing to do with it. Kill him. He knows it's wrong. Francis Schaeffer once said, where there is no absolute to govern society, society is absolute. The Christian must die. And as a result, in verse 30, they withdraw, they gather together a secluded place. Verse 32 they went in a boat to a secluded place by, what's the last word in verse 32? Themselves were home alone. Religion has gone stage left. Politics has gone stage right. We're against everybody. And so the door is shut. Israel is gone. The government is gone. Folks, that is why you and I need to stick together. We don't need religion. We've got our priest, and we've got our sacrifice, and we've got our divine law. Amen. We've got our covenant. I don't need religion. And we don't need politics. We'll be a blessing to politics. We'll pray for our politicians. We'll be model citizens. Tertullian said in his day, search your prisons. They are full of convicts and none of them are Christians. We'll be the best of guys. Uh, but we don't need politics. We've got our king. We've got our constitution. We've got uh, our verdict is already given. We'll be a blessing. But we don't have to put our finger in the wind as to how we're going to live. They've got nothing to say to me concerning God. I'd like them to fix my streets. But other than that, they've got nothing to say to me. We're Christians. And so, incidentally, 
there is an eerie parallel here. Is there a place in the Old Testament where there is a woman that marries a Jewish king and pressures him because a prophet has condemned them and she wants him dead? You ever heard of a king named Ahab? He had a wife named Jezebel. Jezebel. And there was a prophet named Elijah that pointed the finger. And Jezebel said, may the gods do so to me. If your head is on your shoulders tomorrow, I'm going to kill you. That event of Jezebel, Ahab, and Elijah, and she even had a wicked daughter named Athaliah. And that event precipitated the implosion of the northern kingdom. The, the daughter married into the southern kingdom and brought the implosion of the southern kingdom. Here, you've got the same thing, not with Israel, but with Gentile politics. You've got a Herodias, you've got a Herod, you've got a uh, Salome, and you've got John the Baptist. And the same thing happens. There's an eerie parallel on the collapse of government. And so, we need to take communion. What do you say? In the night that he was betrayed, he took bread. And after breaking it said, this is my body, which is for you. And you do this in memory of me. Our Father and our God, we see in this story a day when kings became puppets and when evil became king. And we see it in the stark contrast of our great King Jesus. We are of all men the most blessed. Thank you that we have a word from the outside a creator from the outside. That we have the words that must be foundational to any belief system. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And thus everything makes sense to us. Father, we are in a world that has gone mad. We are in a world that has lost its mind. We're in a country that applauds evil and punishes the right. And you have chosen to let us be converted right here on the beach at Normandy. And we have to take our stand. We thank you for his precious blood and for his death. Thank you for his sacrifice for us. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. And in the same way, he took the cup. And after blessing it said, This is the new covenant in my blood, which is done for the forgiveness of sins. And you do this as oft as you will 
and you never forget me. With all of your doctrine, with all of your service, with all of the stuff you do in community, that's okay. But don't you ever get so far from home that you forget where this came from. You proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. Amen. Until he comes. Our Father and our God, had we had the perfect life of Christ, but had he been willing not to die, we merely would have had another standard that we could not keep up with. Thank you that this perfect man, our perfect God, thank you that he was willing to say, if it be possible, take this cup from me, but not my will, but thine be done. Thank you for his obedience to the point of death, even death on a cross. Thank you that my mind has been clarified as to who God is. My heart has been illumined as to what sin is. My eyes have been directed to the cross as to what salvation is. My soul has been righted as to what the divine will is. My loneliness has been satisfied by the surrounding of the camp of the saints. My future is secure in heaven. My past is founded in the resurrection. We are all men, the most joyful. We rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice in Jesus' name.